I believe firmly that Judaism is going to survive because I believe that the world needs what we have to say. Welcome to Temple Talks, a new podcast from Temple Israel in Minneapolis, where Jewish wisdom meets our ever-changing world. Join us as we talk with our favorite partners and thought leaders from around town and around the world. We hope these talks will inspire you, challenge you, and give us all new ideas about Judaism, religious life, and social justice. I am here with my mom, Cantor Sarah Sager, who was ordained in the same class, I guess invested at that point, it was invested in the same class as Cantor Barry Abelson uh, from Temple Israel in 1978. Yeah, and then served at Anshay Hasev Fairmont Temple from 1980 until 2020. And now you are the Cantor Laureate of Fairmont Temple. And how did you come up with this title? Well, I really see um, quote unquote retirement as a very active time. And I just, it, to my mind, and emerita in this case is much too passive and much too inactive. Whereas um, I, I live in Cleveland and the Cleveland Orchestra, for example, has a conductor laureate and that is um, Christoph uh, von Dochnani and he frequently conducts. And um, there are poet laureates and there are, um, in, in the cultural world, laureate seems to be a, um, an honorific of sorts, as an emerita or emeritus would be, and it just seemed to feel more active and more involved. And, and, and I'm hoping it will catch on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can say we are very grateful that you have been here in Minneapolis for the last month, um, mm -hmm. but regularly Mike asks regularly Mike wonders about what this retirement thing actually is because you are still definitely working a lot. Well, I, I, you know, this pandemic time, my retirement actually has happened during this time of COVID. And um, the whole world is so surreal that I'm not quite sure um, where my life before and my life after are separated. So it's just been a kind of confusing time where I think all hands are on deck and um, we can all do whatever we can do um, to help alleviate and calm and comfort um, the people in our community and beyond uh, to deal with this um, very challenging time. Um, I am grateful to be able to do whatever I can. And let me just say that um, not only am I grateful to be here in Minneapolis with my, with the two most adorable grandchildren in the entire universe, after everyone else's grandchildren who is listening, I recognize that. Um, but it's always a, such a um, profound pleasure for me to participate in any part of the life of Temple Israel because it, um, it lives very vitally in my mind and in my imagination uh, through Jennifer's um, involvement and efforts. And um, it has a, a, a very, I have a very special place in my heart for Temple Israel and all of its members. And there are many connections, by the way, between Fairmont Temple and Temple Israel of people who grew up at Fairmont Temple who are now in Minneapolis and vice versa. 
That is true. It is um, pretty, um, I would say that it shows us how small this world is for the number of people who had their, whose bar or bat mitzvah that you officiated at and whose uh, children are growing up at Temple Israel. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool to see those um, connections and the Lador Vador, the generation to generation that's taking place. Um, and, that, and that really means that Jewish life is working. And that's, I know that has been my life's work and it is now your life work, your life's work. And um, th th those are, those connections are very special. So I thought um, it would be interesting to talk a little bit about your life's work um, and not just your life's work, but how you got into becoming a cantor and um, and how you have seen the cantor change um, over 40 plus years, uh, especially looking at the fact that when you entered, you were one of the first women to become a cantor. Uh, and now most of the classes are majority female. So that, that's a huge shift that's taken. Yeah, those are all uh, excellent questions. The easiest one um, is how I got into it, which was a complete accident. Um, it was really kind of serendipitous. I was um, I was post college. I graduated from college. I was actually in um, graduate school in Boston, but I was living in New York City because I wanted to pursue a um, a secular music career, singing career. And um, I was starving like many others of my ilk at that time, but I had a friend who said to me that he had heard that there were women now in the cantorial school of the Hebrew Union College. And the, the significance of that was that there were many Jewish singers in New York City especially who would pursue a um, secular music career either um, you know, in, in shows or in opera. And then, um, you know, six days a week and on the seventh day, they would serve as cantors or chazanim in um, synagogues throughout the New York metropolitan and even the tri-state area. Excuse me. So when he said there were there were um, women now in the cantorial school, it it was something I had never even considered. But the idea was if I could get into that school or that program and then find a pulpit, I could support myself more easily um, in my pursuit of, um, of opera at the time. So I, um, he told me this actually, I think it was right before Labor Day, it was at the end of the summer and the day after Labor Day, I, I was living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and the Hebrew Union College at that time in New York was, on West 68th Street. So I got on my bicycle and I rode over to the Hebrew Union College and I marched up to the admissions office. And there was, uh, and I went to the woman who was the, the administrative person in charge. I said, I'd like to apply um, to the Cantorial School. And she looks up at me and she said, well, when would you like to go? And I said, now. And she said, well, we're, we're accepting applications for next year. 
And I said, well, I can tell you everything about myself. And I, you know, I'm a graduate of college and I grew up in a Jewish home, et cetera, et cetera. So she finally reluctantly handed me an application and said, well, fill this out as quickly as you can. And I will try to process it as quickly as I can. So I went home, filled it out. And a day or two later, rode back on my bicycle to the Hebrew Union College, went up to her office and said, here it is. And she looked up at me and she said, oh, you're back. I said, yes, here's my application. And it just so happened that the admissions committee was meeting that day for the following year. They were accepting people for the following year. And the chair of the admissions committee was taking a break and he was standing in the office and heard this exchange. And he came over to me, he said, um, could you sing for us right now? And I said, well, I kind of looked down at myself because I had ridden, ridden my bicycle over. I said, could I go home and change? He said, how much time do you need? I said, give me an hour. He said, hurry. So I ran home, changed my clothes, grabbed two pieces of music off the piano, um, got into a taxi this time and went over to the Hebrew Union College and marched up and to the to the to the room where they were hearing auditions and I sang for them and they asked me a bunch of questions. And I, I had a very strong, I had gone to day school. I had gone to day school. So I had a very strong Jewish background and um, I had lots of the credentials that they needed. And they actually accepted me on the spot. And I was in school the following Monday. And thereby began my, um, it, and it started, it, it was such a lark, I, I wasn't even thinking seriously about it. I just thought, well, you know, I'll somehow get a job and I'll make some money and I'll continue to sing. But what happened very quickly is that I, I found that, that what I was being taught was something that I loved. I, I mean, what could be more engaging than learning about Jewish history and Jewish philosophy and Jewish rituals and Jewish practice and the the um, the traditional Chazanut and the contemporary Chazanut about which I knew very little um, and um, liturgy and performance and everything it just it captured me it captured me um, intellectually it captured me um, spiritually. It captured me artistically, and I really was hooked. And it's um, it, it's a hook, I guess, that has lasted um, for over over forty years. Over forty years. And I will just say that um, you are a because there's a lot of overlap between Minneapolis and Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, that you're a proud graduate of Anshay Emmett Day School that I'm sure people here know about. It really was, and it was a very fine school. It encouraged a love of Judaism, um, which as Jennifer knows, is um, something that is basic to our family structure. So you accidentally became a cantor. I, I, you know, if I remember the story correctly, they also, you had no intention of ever really finishing cantorial school even, which, you know, knowing you today is 
hysterical to think that you thought you were going to start something and not finish it because it's just not who you are as a person. Um, but uh, I think there was a piece of paper that they made you sign that any job that you get at, through the college you had to give up if you gave up school, mm-hmm. um, which was also a piece of the puzzle you weren't quite expecting, if I remember that. that right. You were absolutely correct. I was going to paint myself with a better brush. <laughs> <laughs> but that is the MS. That is the truth. And I still remember signing that piece of paper as if I was signing my life away. But in fact, it... Um, it proved to be unnecessary. So you you made it through school, uh, and by made it through and with flying colors. And tell me about you were the first cantor at Fairmont Temple, yeah, on Shamit. Even a little bit more than that, because one of the questions that you asked was being a woman in that field. And gosh, I re- recently heard some a, a woman in a different field address the same question in in the same way that I did at that time. And I'm trying to remember, it might have been one of those interviews with Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the aftermath of her passing. Um, But I actually, I served a New York congregation for two years and and I served a, my student pulpit was was quite formative. It was in Stamford, Connecticut. And both of those experiences were very important to um, as preliminary experiences to going to Fairmont Temple in Cleveland. But the question that was asked of me originally, over and over again, and it's, it seems almost um, quaint or something to, to um, uplift it at this time because it doesn't happen so much anymore. But people constantly ask me, how does it feel to be a woman cantor? And my initial response was, well, I'm not sure. I've never been a male cantor or, you know, that's that's what I am. And then I finally realized what they were saying is, I'm not sure how I feel about a woman cantor or I'm really asking the question of myself. How do I, the questioner, how do I feel? about a woman cantor. And that um, that took some doing, but it those barriers fell away very, very quickly. And in fact, for the cantors, they fell probably more quickly than even for the rabbis. Um, although Sally Prezan, who by the way is a Clevelander, um, was the first woman ordained as a rabbi in 1972. Barbara Ostfeld was the first cantor who was ordained who was invested at that time in 1975. I was invested in 1978. So it was like the fourth woman, but we had an easier time. And the theory was because reform Jews, especially were accustomed to hearing women's voices in their choirs and lots of reform congregations in lots of reform congregations. That was the only musical um, vocal music that they had was choirs, choirs or quartets sometimes with a soloist, sometimes with several soloists, so that uh, a congregation could have a quartet and they would have a soprano, alto, tenor, and bass solo, soloist. Um, so the, the acceptance happened fairly quickly for those congregations that gave us the chance 
it, um, I think the distinctions started to disappear very, very quickly. And for the rabbis, there are still some issues that I'm not sure cantors still face. There are issues of um, economic equality and of opportunities for positions and for upward mobility. Those kinds of things are still being um, examined and evaluated. Um, if I think, if, if I remember this correctly, I think out in the field, there are still more male rabbis than female rabbis. Or out in the field, there are still more reform, I should say, uh, male rabbis than female rabbis, where I think that they're out in the field, there are more reformed female cantors than male. Cantors. There may be, I, that I don't know. I don't know that statistic. Um, and it could skew more male also for the cantors just because there's a longer history. Our organization of the American Conference of Cantors, for example, we, we have a membership of somewhere around 500, 600 um, individuals, whereas the CCAR, the Central Conference of American Rabbis, which is the the parallel organization for rabbis, I think your membership is close to 2000, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, as somebody who's been really active um, in the ACC, I, I, I remember you saying as we've, as we were growing up that the, the leadership had transitioned from more mixed to more predominantly female of the ACC, that the conferences have transitioned from being more mixed to more predominantly female. And I'm wondering how that has felt as you've been involved and seen that transformation. I have been involved. I have seen that transformation. It's, I will be very honest, it's not the kind of transformation anyone wants to see in their profession because historically, um, and unfortunately, when women tend, to, when women come to dominate a profession, the um, the economics of it tend to um, decrease, and the rather the economics of remuneration, the prestige of it tends to decrease. I think, if I am not mistaken, in the medical profession now, there may be more women, at least, who are graduating. Um, medical school than slightly a slight percentage it higher. It breaks down. It breaks down by specialty. That mm -hmm. different specialties have different. Um, yeah. Like pediatrics is majority female. Surgery is still majority male. Yes. Yes. And and the um, ACC and the um, uh, Debbie Friedman School of Sacred Music at the Hebrew Union College have made efforts to and to encourage men in the field. And we're seeing more of a balance now in the classes coming out of the Hebrew Union College because we, there is this realization that anytime you have a, a dominant gender, it, it things get unbalanced and it, it's, it's not a good thing. However, having said that, um, the women have established a standard that is very, very high. And the profession itself, I mean, I have been asked to do things that the conference of mine in, at Fairmont Temple, I think it's it's not fair to say that they don't that, that, that they don't know of them. I think they really do. But in the in the beginning, in the beginning, and for many of my colleagues, there is the perception that all a cantor does is sing. There is a book, in fact, I think, having to do with rabbis, not with cantors, but I think the title is something like, what do you do the rest of the week? And there's kind of this uh, phenomenon that when you're when our congregants don't see us, they think we're not doing anything. And in fact, the weeks are 
filled, filled with responsibilities, whereas services um, can become a very small percentage of our overall workload. And that I think has been part of part of the excellence of women coming into the field. I, I very clearly remember when I was growing up and people would ask if you worked part-time because uh-huh. they thought that all you did was work was work on Friday nights and Saturday mornings and I would you know, freak out because <laughs> you you worked seven days a week, sometimes felt like 24 hours all those seven days. Um, but when I, you know, when I, you were the only example of a candidate that I, I knew you're what I grew up with. So what I didn't realize was how groundbreaking it was that you were a full clergy as a cancer, that you were officiating at funerals, just you, no rabbi, that you you have always officiated at weddings, sometimes with a rabbi, sometimes you were the officiant. You did the whole wedding ceremony, the whole um, unveiling uh, or stone setting as we called it in Cleveland. Yeah. Or baby naming, or yes. a, or you know, a bris, or teaching classes and going to meetings and programming and staffing any number of parts of our congregation. It is it's a very very full, uh, pastoral visits, pastoral visits, hospitals and you know home visits and calls and um, counseling and conversions. Anything that that would that would come into the temple. I was accepted as a full clergy partner, and that was that was very special and very meaningful to me. And I will share with your, um, you know, with your congregation that both Jennifer and her brother Jonathan put up with me. I mean, they, they put up with me, not always happily, and I owe them both a, a real debt of gratitude, and that my congregation owes them a debt of gratitude because they had to put on hold their many times their plans and their expectations because. I had a funeral because I had to run to the hospital, because I had to prepare a Devar Torah for the weekend, because I had to do a presentation of some kind. And um, Jennifer will tell you, I don't know if you were prepared to say, to say this or not, but she would say from a fairly early age, from grade school on, that any time that she and I made plans for my day off, which happened to be a Thursday, invariably I would be called to do a funeral and um, she maintains that and she's right she's right there were so many times we had plans to do something and they they fell through and somehow as I have said in other contexts she and her brother grew up without rejecting Judaism and so far have not rejected their mother either (laughs) although I understand that's a day-to-day proposition (laughs) I don't know. Jonathan and I have both decided that we like you a lot, and, um, and there were a lot of enriching parts of being clergy kids in a family that we had um, in a very different way than, than other people really get, which is very special. As we've been talking, I've been thinking about the fact that you were the first cantor at your congregation, and that many cantors who were who came out of school in the 1970s in the reform movement were the first cantors of their congregation and really had to determine what that profession looked like because before that with choirs or soloists they did only work on Friday nights and Shabbat mornings and probably just high holidays and not much else and I believe there are probably still 
um, congregations, uh, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, where the person who functions as the chazan or the shaliach tibur, the person who represents the community in prayer, um, is is um, just a weekend person and may function as a lawyer or um, you know a, a sales rep or any number of things during the week. That that still does exist. Um, yes, I was the first cantor of Fairmont Temple, and um, and that meant meant a great deal to me. And I felt actually both as a woman and as the first person in that situation, uh, a responsibility, really a responsibility to um, to set a standard and to set a, a work ethic that could not be um, criticized from the point of view that, oh, she's a woman, she's not, she's not doing A, B, C or X, Y, Z. If I were to be truly, I mean, when I, in my most honest moments, I should have been better at setting boundaries and limits. And um, it probably would have been better for the congregation, uh, maybe better for me, maybe certainly better for my family. But I was anxious to um, to prove something, to prove something. And uh, felt that, felt that um, which was largely self-imposed, yeah. But one of the things that we have talked about at length is the fact that the, that the things that you and others who um, finished school again, from 1972 to you know, probably the early 80s, you paved the way uh, for me and for my classmates, both male and female, to be able to, to make choices. Um, you know, a, a Temple Israel, Rabbi Zimmerman was the first real female uh, leader to say, I'm going to work part time. And when she had her kids, she was working part time. I will say about Rabbi Zimmerman, I don't know if she's ever actually worked part time. <laughs> <laughs> she is like you in many ways and how devoted she is to Temple Israel and how she is always there for everybody and anybody who needs her. Um, but if it weren't for people who were willing to make those sacrifices, then those who are coming out of school would be in a very different place. And we owe all of you a, a debt of gratitude for what we can do. Well, that, you know, that is, that, that's very special to hear. And I know that currently there are, um, that, the, that the women coming out have different expectations. I mean, I literally, after after you were born, three, and, and Jennifer, I'll just share with the community, you know, she arrived two weeks late, which, which was not part of the plan. Um, and three weeks after you were born, I was officiating at a wedding. And that year, six weeks after you were born was Rosh Hashanah, and I was on the pulpit. And um, I understood for the first time why, according to our tradition, women were exempt from time bound commandments from those commandments that have to happen at a certain time of the day or the year. So you have been the first in a lot of different things or one of the first in a lot of different things. And I would be remiss in doing a podcast with you and not bring up the women's commentary that oh. sits in the, um, you forgot about it. I, <laughs> you know, uh, definitely did not forget about it. I remember so clearly you and I think it, and Judy Hurts, 
may your memory be a blessing sitting in our living room having this deep conversation and all I wanted was both of your attentions for something <laughs> and I had some story to share something I wanted to do and you were dreaming up this women's commentary you know that was the early 90s it did that come to fruition until many years later but it did and it sits in um, it sits in our congregations across across the country with yeah. a note from you at the very beginning. I am very proud of that. If, if anyone asked me, you know, what is the proudest moment of your career? I, that would probably be it. I was I was invited. I was I was in Cleveland already, but I had um, connections with I had lived in New York and my first congregation, there was a first congregation before Fairmont Temple, although most of my congregants would not believe that. My first congregation was in Merrick, Long Island, uh, Merrick, Long Island, New York. And I had, um, I knew people in there, uh, in the leadership of the regional, um, what was then the regional, uh, region number three of the National Federation of Temple Sisterhoods. At any rate, they asked me to speak at their regional convention. I believe it was in 91 or 92. And the topic they gave me was the Torah from the perspective of reform Jewish women. And I received that call. It was the week in which the Torah portion was um, Akedat Yitzhak, the, um, the attempted, the binding and, a, and almost sacrifice of Isaac. And for, before the call came, I had been thinking about it because I, I was asked to write a Devar Torah for the board meeting that month. And for some reason, maybe because I was a new mother, a relatively new mother, I had two young children at that time. For some reason, it occurred to me that had Sarah been asked to sacrifice her child, the story would have stopped right there. She would have just said, no, you know, this is not my God. This is not possible. And because this call came as I was considering that possibility, I said yes to being a scholar. Oh, the, the, and the invitation was to be the scholar in residence at this, at this um, regional convention a year from then. So I, the call must have come in 91. Anyway, I spent a year studying and working and, cre and, re and creating two major presentations. And what I realized was that I, and I was gleaning and looking and doing research and there was an article here and there was an article there and there was a book there and there was something here, but there was no central place I could go to to find the, the literature, the, the research, the scholarship on women, women in, in biblical times, women in the Bible, women as represented in our sacred texts. And I thought to myself, what if, what if there was a central, a central place? And I, I thought of it for me, you know, it, it was really very selfish in a way, but it also occurred to me that if there was such a thing where all of the research and all of the scholarship, because at that time in the early nineties, we were starting to reap the rewards of women entering into, into the field of, of Jewish feminist scholarship, um, that if we, that could all be gathered in one central place, it would be a, a terrific tool and it would be a tool for study for decades following. So as part of my presentations at that convention, I charged the women of Reform Judaism, the now women of Reform Judaism, to commission 
a women's commentary to the Torah that would make use of every woman, scholar, rabbi who had something to say about our tradition. And they were so excited about the idea that they asked me to speak a year later at the national convention of the um, women, uh, the National Federation of Temple Sisterhoods. I think it was that year actually it became the Women of Reform Judaism. And they embraced the idea and they actually made, they raised the money. Um, Judy Hertz was instrumental in creating an editorial board on which I had the privilege to serve. But we gathered all of the major women, women scholars. And um, I think they are all represented in that volume, Reform Conservative Orthodox. And there are 200 women poets also represented in a special part of the book, which is called um, Contemporary Voices. Now, I think there's another, it's, it has another name. It's the poetic section. And Temple Israel's um, sisterhood also raised a large amount of money for the uh, women's commentary to, to be able to be printed. And I know that's something that Temple Israel is very proud of too. Yeah, it was an extraordinary partnership yeah. of women across a spectrum who who worked on every part of it, and it all came together in a in a remarkable way, um, in a remarkable way, really. So, ma'am, you know your story. I mean, your story is really one for all women um, of many generations in the workforce. Um, of you know, and, and you you brought that kind of to the forefront as you talked about different fields that women have um, become a part of. And as you look back on your career thus far, I will say, because it is far from over for the, um, actually, uh, side note, I don't think I told you this, but after you and I taught a Torah study um, together a couple of months ago, a couple of congregants of Temple Israel uh, Googled you and found some of the meditations that you do on a weekly basis that make their way onto YouTube and onto Facebook. Um, so you are very much far from the end of your career, but as you look back on what has been so far, uh, what are what are some of the, the lessons that you have learned from it that, um, that we should take away, those of us who are in the beginnings or middles of our careers? Oh, what a wonderful question. And I reserve the right to come back to an answer at another time when I've had more time to think about it. No, I mean, I, I will. I think there are a couple of things. I think, I'm getting a little bit emotional, but I think Judaism has a power that goes beyond any one of us. And I know that when people get upset and get worried, um, you know, is Judaism going to survive? I believe firmly that Judaism is going to survive because I believe that the world needs what we have to say. We are responsible for making that happen and continue in a way that is vital and vibrant and um, authentic and relevant. But I believe in Judaism and its messages. And that has been profoundly inspiring, inspiring. I believe in, and Jennifer knows as well, in constantly putting one foot in front of the other. Um, sometimes it's very hard. Sometimes it's good enough just to stand in place. 
But I do believe that if one continues to do that, um, answers evolve and a, a way is found. I believe also, or I have learned that our people, I, this is probably related to what I said in the beginning, but that most of our congregants, most of our people, most Jews, feel a connection to Judaism they don't entirely understand. But it is real and it is deep and it is um, heartfelt. And it has a depth that sometimes catches all of us unawares, um, particularly at moments of either trauma or of Thanksgiving when a child is born, when there is a death. Uh, I, I just see people cling to our traditions. Um, for their comfort and for their um, for a sense of of ballast of 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 um, haven of, of safety at this time, even during this time of of the pandemic, so many Jewish um, events that have gone online have been overly subscribed. Um, people need want reach out. I mean, part of it is the connection, but also part of it, is, I believe is the wisdom that our tradition has to offer. Those are, those are some of the lessons that I would share. You know, I think one of the things that's been um, instilled in me and in Jonathan in what a goal is, is, is that it is to lead a purpose-filled life. And that Judaism, not just being Jewish clergy, but, Judaism as a religion um, gives us many different ways to live a purpose-filled life. That's very important. And Jennifer knows and shares with me a sense of pride that her brother, although the only non-professional Jew that we sort of know, um, <laughs> um, is very involved as a layperson in the synagogue. Um, and that's a, that's a source of pride for both of us because our, our Jewish institutions need leadership. They need good leadership. So that's, and yes, Jennifer's absolutely right. And one can be a Jew in many, many different ways. The most important, the most important is just in our day-to-day -day lives is how, how, do we, how do we treat our families? How do we treat the people around us? How do we move through this world? Judaism speaks to that. And if we're not doing that according to the vision of what it means to be a human being, there's little else that's going to matter. I think Jonathan said something along the lines of, how did I, the sibling and child of clergy, get conned into being a board member of a synagogue? But he did. <laughs> right. <laughs> we all have responsibility. We have a responsibility to live a Jewish life and to and to pass it on, and to pass it on, please God, in a better way than we found it. If not, if not, if not our tradition, at least our world as it is realized. And to be there for our community and to help our community in whatever way that we are able, given exactly. our our skill sets. And our, exactly. Thank you for being here. So this was again a conversation um, with Cantor Sarah Sager. Um, and my mother and a very accomplished cantor for over 40 years. Thank you for letting me just be here with you and in your space and in your community. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Mom. Thank you for listening to this week's beautiful episode of Temple Talks. As always, we love receiving your comments and questions. Please email them to tmoss at templeisrael.com and I will make sure that they reach their proper destination. Please subscribe to the podcast, share this episode with a friend, and we look forward to our next Temple Talk with you.